Hello and welcome to Voices in Innovation. My name is Johnny Baltusberger. And today with me, I have Chris Gundaman, a fairly recent addition to the Gigaome lineup of analysts. And uh, Chris recently wrote a report for us called The Key Criteria for Evaluating SD1. So I wanted to have him on today to discuss that report and a little bit of his uh, expertise and experience in the industry. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Hi, doing well. Great to talk to you this morning. Great. Great to have you. So as I mentioned, I'd love to get to know how your journey brought you to GigaOM and and how you developed your expertise over the years. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, John. Yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting story um, just because it's been a fairly varied or windy path. Uh, I started doing network engineering pretty early on, and I guess it really goes all the way back to being a kid. You know, you know, before most people had computers, my dad brought down brought home a Texas Instruments, and uh, and as soon as modems were out, we had kind of the first modems and things. So I was on Prodigy and, and CompuServe and some of those early stations. So played with computers from a very young age, but even professionally got started pretty young, started doing um, just really basic stuff, setting up routers and things in small offices. And um, that eventually parlayed into my first kind of real job, which was also my first real networking job. Uh, in the very early 2000s, I helped a company uh, that was originally called Hometown Access and then turned into a company called WaveMax. And we essentially built out um, fixed broadband wireless in underserved and unserved markets in Colorado. And then as uh, DSL and cable penetration started happening into those rural areas, we actually focused back in on Denver and built uh, a, a wireless-based Metro Ethernet network uh, in the very early days of Metro Ethernet. So that was a real trial by fire and I learned a lot. Um, and really that's where I developed my passion for the internet. And from then on really got into both the certification tracks as well as kind of the volunteer track. I started working with organizations like Aaron, the American Registry for Internet Numbers, and NANOG, the North American Network Operators Group, and then from there kind of into other things as well. Uh, ended up founding a uh, Denver, Colorado chapter of the Internet Society, and, and you know that, that path led eventually to founding uh, IX Denver, which is an internet exchange in Denver that, uh, that I help operate with some other friends and network engineers today. Uh, so that was kind of one side of it. And then at the other side, uh, from there, moved over to TW Telecom, and helped kind of build that out and, and upgrade them to IPv6 and went on to Cable Labs where I did a bunch of uh, research and development, wrote some patents on internet technologies and uh, then went into working for the Internet Society full time for a couple of years, traveling around the world, speaking at conferences, uh, network operator groups, network operator forums and so forth, getting some of those started, really trying to push what we call the broccoli technologies, uh, which are the things that everybody knows they need to eat, but, uh, but not everybody wants to. Uh, so things like IPv6, DNSSEC, TLS, uh, RPKI, uh, those types of new technologies that are really for the safety and robustness of the internet. Um, and all of that kind of culminated into uh, me coming uh, to work at uh, Myriad 360, which is where my, I spend most of my time now uh, helping clients um, build really large, scalable infrastructures uh, that are uh, secure and, and automated. Well, that's incredibly cool. Uh, although I will say the Internet Society sounds like some shadowy organization out of a Bond movie, but I'll forgive that. Um, in the most recent report that you wrote, SD1, uh, you talked about the key criteria, the table stakes, 
the evaluation metrics, the things that we put in all key criteria reports. What I thought was interesting is you addressed a question that I have when reading these is what differentiates something from a key criteria from a table stake? Uh, because at one point, air conditioning in cars was considered a, a bonus, a key criteria. Whereas today, it's a table stake. It's something that if a car doesn't have, you just won't buy. Mm-hmm. So you touch on that a little bit. And I want to know, how did you decide what to consider a table stake, something that it had to have or it wasn't even something to consider or something that had a little more leeway and differentiation? Yeah. So I think, I mean, you answered it a little bit there in, in the question, right? Which is that this is a, uh, a timeline, I guess. Uh, nothing stays as and then we really work all the way from, you know, the near-term game-changing technologies that are a little bit out there, right? Two to three years out that we think are going to come and, and change the industry or change the market. The, the key criteria, which are the areas that are really actively being evaluated right now, the areas for differentiation today. And then those table stakes, which was really kind of the bar to be in that industry. And, and I think those things do flow through over time. So I would expect that in two to three years, the things that we see as near-term game-changers uh, in SD-WAN is things like, uh, the branch plus type stuff, really having um, those technologies from the SD-WAN move into the LAN as well and encompass things like Wi-Fi, network access control, and additional things that happen at the branch itself. Another one is, is probably moving that WAN edge into people's personal devices and some court kind of uh, zero trust network access or um, uh, software-defined parameter type solution. It's going to kind of, I think, be folded into what we're now calling SD-WAN today. So those things that are now, you know, two to three years out, I think in, you know, if we're right in two to three years, those will be the key criteria that we're evaluating these products by. And some of the things we're looking at as key criteria today, uh, especially some of the basic security functionality, some of the basic routing and forwarding functionality, some of those things that we're looking at as differentiators today will have become table stakes uh, over time. And so I think that's a constant progression uh, through all technologies and and most products in, in the industry in that um, you kind of move over time. And when something's brand new, you know, any feature is, is, can be a, uh, you know, a game changer or a differentiator, uh, but eventually as the market starts to mature, you see those things become table stakes as, as more and more competitors all settle on what the base uh, functionality needs to be to really fit that, uh, that need. Interesting. So uh, we're gonna take a small step back, uh, backwards. Maybe we should have covered this first. Yeah. Um, SD1, WAN, sorry, is software-defined wide area network. Now, I grew up in the age of playing games over land, the local area networks. That was the big thing when I was uh, kind of in college and uh, high school. Sure. What differentiates a, and I think the answer is obvious, but for anyone who's not, <laughs> who doesn't think so, yeah. What is the difference between a software-defined WAN and a non-software-defined wide area network? Sure. Uh, yeah. So as you said, I think you know one of the things to, to initially talk about there is is you know what the wide area network is. Um, for most enterprises, the wide area network is something that's been what connects their offices to their data centers. Um, and so traditionally, uh, a lot of companies set up their wide area network exactly in that fashion. Um, they would have a, a big primary data center. It was kind of the hub. 
And then all the spokes were your various different offices, whether those are branch offices or headquarters, or maybe a backup data center, that kind of thing. Really, really based on that physical presence in a co-location facility or even a customer-owned data center. And so that, that star topology, that hub and spoke, is, is the way we set these, these up. Um, as what's changing, really, a big part of what's changing is the move towards uh, cloud services. And whether that's infrastructure as a service or software as a service or platform as a service, all of these different um, new ways of consuming your own data and your own applications that are no longer in a centralized data center require internet connectivity to all of these branch offices. But you don't want that to just be standard internet connectivity. You really want to kind of protect that and be able to optimize it for the right flows and that kind of thing. And so what you're doing now is you're making your WAN much more complicated because you need to connect the branches together, potentially. You need to connect the branches back to the headquarters. You probably still have some kind of physical on-premises data center. But now you've also got, whether it's Office 365 or Google Applications, or you've got, uh, you know, maybe it's Salesforce or HubSpot or Slack. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on um, of all these internet-enabled applications that are probably running your business now. And so what you have to do is be able to build this WAN network that actually connects all those different things and prioritizes maybe your voice and video traffic over someone's Facebook browsing, for instance. And, and so the way to do that is by putting more intelligence into the network. And the software defined is really that piece of how do we look at this holistically and put that intelligence in place from a centralized controller, that's really the software defined piece of this, that can look at your entire network and push the right traffic over the right links to meet your latency, bandwidth, and prioritization requirements. You talk a lot about, both now and in the report, the importance of security. You mentioned VPNs a few times. And I think in this day where most people are working remote, uh, and I don't think that's going to change uh, even after the current situation changes, I think that it's kind of a new paradigm. Is this going to make a new standard for security in SD1 vendors, or is this going to just follow a trend that already exists? That's interesting. I think it's a little bit of both, right? I definitely think that um, the the current uh, kind of global pandemic that's happened has accelerated um, many of these trends, right? So if we, you know, there was just a report out I saw today, actually, that was when I saw it, uh, about, you know, the kind of year over year growth of cloud services. Um, and that includes all the big players as well as all the small ones. And, and it looks like you know, the, the remote work did not stop us at all. So even though there's kind of a global recession going on, cloud adoption continues to grow at the rate we would have expected if nothing had happened. Um, and I think, you know, what we obviously know is that remote work was definitely accelerated uh, through this pandemic. And I think you're right. I think some things won't kind of go back to normal completely. There's a lot of folks who now know that they can run their business remotely, that they can work remotely, that they can manage remotely, whatever the thing might be that, that's most important to them. Um, you know, a lot of people have realized that it can be done. Uh, outside of the office. And so I think those two things combined will definitely continue to drive these trends forward where I think we were already on this path towards more and more cloud services and more and more remote work. Uh, this may have been accelerated. It definitely wasn't slowed down at all. And so I think we'll continue to see um, the importance of this uh, evolve over time for sure. Uh, and, and those two things definitely bring in new paradigms into your security architecture. And that's where, um, and again, you know, I really do see one of the near-term game changers. I mean, it's on the horizon here. Um, you know, something that uh, I really like William Gibson's quote in, in almost all technology we talk about, which is that uh, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Um, and, and this is one of those cases, right? There is some zero trust network access things starting to happen. Um, there's some, some companies that have some cool 
uh, software-defined parameter type options. Uh, they haven't really been folded into the overall WAN picture yet, and I think we will see that. And, and so that, that's definitely a big piece of this is that zero trust networks access. Um, but just in general, right? I mean, I think cloud and remote access brings a lot of different security concerns to the fore um, that need to be addressed in an enterprise platform. Uh, and that may be your SD-WAN platform for sure. When you're looking at emerging trends in an emerging technology, how mm -hmm. fast does it move? Uh, I was speaking with uh, Ned Bellavance the other day uh, on the third episode of Voices in Innovation about edge infrastructure. And we discussed the way that it's very early in its life cycle. It's in the uh, angel fire state <laughs> of the internet, so to speak. So how fast do these vendors, these SD1 vendors have to move to stay abreast and to stay relevant in the marketplace? Yeah, that's an interesting question for sure. Um, I do think that although, you know, I've definitely been talking about SD-WAN with folks for, I mean, at least three years now, we've been using that term um, somewhere around probably four years ago or ish is when, it, when, it, when that term kind of materialized, I think somewhere in that realm. Um, but we're really starting to see major adoption just now happening, right? So there was definitely some early adopters along the last few years. Um, last year, we definitely saw an uptick. And I think this year, um, you know, despite maybe some companies putting a hold on some spending, I think we're still going to see 2020 as a big year for, for SD-WAN deployments and a lot of companies kind of moving this direction over the next year or two. And so, you know, anytime you have a market that's starting to mature in that way, there's definitely going to be some, some shakeup and some, and some fast churn, I think. Um, so, you know, it's definitely been a race to put the features in place over the last few years. And I think that's, you know, very easily going to be accelerated as folks start to sign up big new customers and say, Hey, we're going to go with you, but we need X, Y, and Z feature added to your platform, et cetera. You know, that, uh, definitely an enterprise software, I think money talks. Um, and so when you're signing up a new customer and they have a big feature request that definitely accelerates the path, uh, to those new features and that more robust platform. And since we're in that growth curve where we're starting to see that hockey stick of SD-WAN deployments, bigger and bigger deployments, lots more deployments all over the world. Uh, I think we'll continue to see a really fast innovation uh, cycle to, to keep up with that demand and to make sure that uh, people are kind of jockeying for position as they sign up customers. It's always fascinating to me, the rate at which companies have to grow and evolve, uh, especially within the tech industry. Although because tech is saturated everything in our modern world. Every company has to kind of stay abreast and evolve with what's happening. Another question that I that came into my head as I was reading your report, you mentioned scalability and how it's a hard metric to really define and judge. And not just with scalability, how do you rate these various metrics? How do you go in and say, well, this one's at a three and this one's at two, but this one's at a five on things that are, again, constantly evolving, but also may behave differently based on the environment that's deployed in? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, scalability is, is one factor that for sure, it's, it's one of those things that um, until it's actually tested uh, at scale and in production, it, it's, it's hard to say yes or no. Uh, it's very, it's fairly easy for a company to say, Hey, you know, we know we can do up to, you know, we have, we have limited in our memory or limited in our CPU or whatever that might be. Right. Theoretically it can go up to X, whatever that scale number might be, right. Number of sites, number of VPNs, number of different flows, 
um, all kinds of different scale metrics we can look at. Um, but until it's actually tested, it's really hard to know. And until it's been tested in your environment, it's really hard to know. Um, but I think more broadly, uh, that, that is true for a lot of these key criteria that in your specific environment, you know, there may be different ways to look at it. Um, TCO is another one that, that's really hard to judge without looking at your specific situation and, you know, financially. Um, and so that is one of the hardest jobs of the analyst, I think, which is taking what is essentially uh, a large collection of fairly qualitative data and, and trying to produce a quantitative metric or evaluation of a product or service based on that. Um, and so that's really what it comes down to, though, is, is really looking at as much information as possible. So I like to, you know, obviously go through all of the documentation from each individual vendor, but then also talk to those vendors, ask questions about that. And then the biggest thing is then going talking to real end users, right? Folks who have deployed this stuff, whether it's, um, you know, a VAR or an MSP who has deployed this on behalf of a customer, you know, kind of that middleman between the customer and, and the vendor or a customer themselves, right? And I like to talk to both of those to really kind of get the nitty gritty of, you know, how this was deployed, how it functioned after it was deployed, what the POC testing looked like and understand all of that information. And again, really knowing that, you know, even if you get quantitative information in some of those areas, to try to apply it to a different scenario, it, may, it becomes qualitative and you have to just gather lots of information and, and boil it down and distill it and, and try to do the best you can to come up with what is a quantitative metric on that, uh, on that value. So like any kind of research, it's about getting the full story. Sure, absolutely. And I think I think what you mentioned where you talk to the end users, the people that are deploying these solutions in their business, you're going to get, you're sometimes going to get the most honest picture of what's happening. You know, sometimes you'll get a dissatisfied customer who's going to give you the worst case scenario and obviously, when you talk to the vendor themselves, they're going to give you the best case scenario. Yeah. So by varying who you're speaking with at every level of the funnel of use, you're getting a full picture and able to speak honestly about each of these vendors. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if, if, uh, I think a lot of people are now ordering things online, even if they hadn't before. And uh, the reviews online, right? You've, got, uh, you've always got somebody in there with a one star who just hates the product. And, and, you know, some mix between, uh, but if you see that, you know, out of a thousand reviews, 999 of them are, are five stars, uh, you can really start to see that picture, right? Um, so exactly the same thing, right? Just bringing in as much information as possible from the people who are really using the products is exactly the way to do it. Absolutely. It's, I think it's how people are shopping now, uh, not just for things off Amazon, but for all the products in their life from professional to personal. So I think that's smart. Chris, it's been a delight speaking with you. How can people interact with you, continue the conversation? If they have questions about the report, how can they seek follow-up or read more of your work? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the easiest ways to find me online is on Twitter at uh, Chris Grundeman. Uh, I also have a, a blog or website, uh, which is chrisgrundeman.com. And those two things kind of link out to everything else. Uh, I definitely disperse my writing these days across several different platforms, uh, GigaOM being a big one of them. Uh, but uh, all of that kind of gets housed and, and distributed out from chrisgrundeman.com. Fantastic. So easy way to find all of your stuff. And of course, if you want to read his report, the key criteria for evaluating SD1, you can find that at gigaohm.com. In fact, for all of your future forward advice, I highly recommend going to gigaohm.com for reports, webinars, obviously this podcast. 
but also blog posts and more. Thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Thanks, John. This was a pleasure. And for GigOM.com, I've been Johnny Baltusberger, and this is Voices in Innovation. Just listen.